0: Topaz, a Hitchcock thriller that is a solid espionage movie that has lots of pluses and some minuses, too. Is Topaz a real jewel? (laughs) Let's see. Hi, this is Dan. And Tom. The spymovienavigator.com and our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. We're your spy movie team, bringing you the best coverage of spy movies in the world for almost five years. All right. Alfred Hitchcock's Topaz is a 1969 espionage thriller based on the 1967 Cold War novel of the same name by Leon Uris. It has met with mixed reviews since it came out in 1969, and we want to talk about some of the issues now. Well, it is a Hitchcock movie, and in general, that's a good thing. Some said Hitchcock should have folded up his director's chair before Topaz and Dorn Gurtain, but let's see if he still fits in that chair for
1: Topaz. Oh, jeez, (laughs) Dan. The Torn Curtains a better movie than Topaz, but look at it. Hey, that. hey
0: there's some great stuff in here. The plot <laughs> is complicated, and you really have to pay attention. And we now have the advantage of watching a scene more than once if we want to, and if we need to. There's a lot going on. Wait
1: that but... that says that says a lot. The fact that you may need to watch a scene multiple times. There's a lot to of movies.
0: It. There's a lot of movies like that now. <laughs> I mean, you know, try to keep up with Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning man all right but the plot based on the cuban missile crisis which was a real world event in october 1962 it was a direct and extremely volatile dangerous confrontation between the united states and the soviet union during the cold war so this was real it was based on this it was as close to a real nuclear conflict at that time as we have seen to date between these two superpowers and of course the rest of the world one way or another would have been drawn into this conflict. This movie is based on the novel, as we said, by Leon Uris, which is based on the real life espionage that was happening between these two superpowers at the time. The movie's not a documentary, nor is it stating that it's mostly true, what they're showing in the movie. Obviously it's fiction, some of it, but what is true is that there was a real Cuban Missile Crisis and this movie taking its liberties the is a story about the espionage that went on behind the scenes.
1: You know, for me, Dan, this was interesting because I love how they bring some of the realities of the situation mm-hmm. that allow the liberties they take feel more plausible. I'm going to talk about this more a little bit later. I did want to say the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was only two months old when it happened, but I had an awesome teacher in high school that covered this thing. And when he went through this and we did that whole thing, it was frightening. So I can't imagine what it would have been like being alive then, dealing with what was happening with this and the magnitude of what could have gone wrong.
0: Oh, it was a very tense time in the world when this was going on. No one knew what was going to happen next. And the threat of a nuclear war was very, very real. All right. Now, here, in this movie, basically, the agents of the United States are gathering intelligence that says that offensive weapons are being assembled in Cuba that could easily strike the United States of America. One American spy is friends with a French spy, and he solicits his help in trying to sort through and determine the real facts so that the United States could protect itself from potential attack only 90 miles away from the United States' southern shore and to do what they could do to get these offensive weapons out of Cuba as soon as possible without causing, like we said, World War Three, a nuclear one. Topaz, yeah, now, Dan,
1: Dan, you say 90 miles. They likely weren't going to drop a bomb on Fort Lauderdale. They would have gone up a little further north to be able to get be able to. No, it but the,
0: the coast is only 90 miles away. That's how close yeah. Cuba is to the United States, so that's pretty scary. And it was that's a scary, true. scary time.
1: Okay, so Dan, you, you talked about the setup of what's behind this movie yeah and you also mentioned there's some pluses and minuses so why why don't we start with the pluses yeah um, yeah there's plenty gonna, of
0: pluses in this movie
1: yeah i mean and the, the, the first thing here for me was the visual style you see this and you know it's a hitchcock movie yeah, you could have a sound off and you know hitch did this yeah and you've got this innovative and stylish direction there's a scene in like a cafeteria or cafe, something like that. And I mean, instantly it just screams to you the scene in North by Northwest. Yeah. yeah when yeah. they're, when they're in the cafeteria by Mount Rushmore, it's yep. just like, this is Hitchcock. It features Hitchcock's signature storytelling, his visual use of storytelling, his suspenseful sequences, although sometimes not as suspenseful as we sometimes get in his movie. And part of that's because of the script. But then we also get interesting and unique camera angles here. These close-ups that come out of nowhere, the sweeps. I mean, visually, this is a really good movie to watch.
0: It's a winner. Visually, it's...
1: The sets are solid. And, you know, a little bit period piece for us now. Granted, they filmed it in 69. It was supposed to be 62. So making it a period piece is pretty easy. But if you think about it, the concept of two powers potentially coming into nuclear war that's still valid today
0: yeah exactly so the movie has reference even though it was good then and we'll we'll talk about the box office stuff the content of the movie and what's going on in the movie is very topical today No, no question about it i mean another good thing about the movie i think is that we see the world we get to travel to several places in the world including copenhagen wiesbaden west germany Virginia, Paris, New York City, Washington, D.C., and Cuba. I'm going to say Cuba in quotes because Cuba was shot in the studio for obvious (laughs) reasons 1969 we weren't going to Cuba. (laughs) Uh, So the remainder of the film was shot at Universal Studios in Hollywood and in and around the city of Los Angeles, California, in the U.S. But this adds to the sense of global intrigue again. And it's certainly, in 1969, borrowed from the James Bond movies in terms of this. So this is a story, again, not a documentary. So certainly Bond influenced, I think, some of the places they went.
1: Well, it's not just the places they went. One of the things about Bond movies that we kind of like is that Bond has to interact with people from around the world. Yeah. And in this movie, they've got agents from two different countries that have to work together, somebody from France and from somebody from the U.S., yeah, yeah. Now, In the James Bond series, we're used to seeing the American Felix Leiter working with the British James Bond. So I think this bringing in the agents from the different parts of the globe makes the world a little bit tighter mm. and more integrated. And I, I just think it's a really good way to close the world in a little bit on us.
0: And really, it makes it more realistic because in the spy world, allies did exchange information and did help each other in these spy related missions so yeah i liked it too i thought that was good all right the other thing is we mentioned the plot it is it's a complicated plot but it is an intriguing plot the film revolves around cold war espionage and political intrigue which appealed to audiences certainly who lived through the cuban missile crisis when john f kennedy was president of the united states and those who are interested in spy movies and perhaps real-life events that included spying, real spying, and real espionage. The key here in Topaz is that this is an espionage movie, a true espionage movie. You and get it's the an feeling.
1: espionage movie, not an action movie made to look like an espionage movie.
0: Right, yeah. You, you get the feeling from that jump that there's going to be tension between the United States and and the Soviet Union, but we get the immediate sense that real espionage, real spying is going on here. Not fancy cars and gadgets. There were some beautiful women, however, but you get the idea. This is a spy movie, espionage movie, really. It has its dark side. We see true violence. We see death and blood. We see frustration and depths of despair, but it's not the spy who came in from the cold type of movie, really, but it has some elements of it in it. And some of, I think, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy as well.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. But And I also think, you said there were no gadgets, but, but I thought yeah. there were some nice espionage tactics used.
0: I, I didn't rely on gadgets.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was this character called Thomas, who I guess was as close as you could come to a cue in this yeah. movie, right? And his gadgets were real-world things. Yeah. I mean, some of the things they, they did from an espionage perspective was they had a very well-executed dead drop when we talked to andrew bustamante who was a real live cia operative he talked about how often dead drops are used yeah. and how you always choose a different location for the dead drop and they used a really nice effective dead drop here in this movie
0: yeah yeah they did that was great
1: there's also a camera hidden inside sandwiches and also yeah. inside of a chicken yeah i mean so that was kind of cool and it also had tapes or film hidden in typewriter spools and book bindings. And there was even a micro dot in this thing. I yeah. Mean, you... I mean, that's all,
0: that's all great stuff. Really? I mean, I love the dead drop. The dead drop was great. I, I, it, it's a tried and true spy technique. Even the brush by drop. There was one in this movie as oh, that's well. That's right. In the beginning, right. In New York. I mean, that that was excellent. Excellent oh. spy stuff. Real. With stuff. Roscoe
1: Lee Brown. Gotta love that guy. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So, and we saw Microdot, of course, used in Mission Impossible 3 with the Microdot that Lindsay Ferris sent to Ethan Hunt. I mean, Microdot's been around a long time, but here they're using it in this movie in 1969. Pretty
1: cool. Well, it's it's interesting because I don't see it a ton in spy movies, and you would think they would use them because it's a great way to transmit a bunch of data innocuously. It's just a dot on a piece of paper. Who, yeah. you
0: know, Easily hidden.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely.
0: Yeah, uh, And in this movie, there's really no tongue-in-cheek one-liners. There's few moments of relaxation. And it moves both slowly and quickly. (laughs) (laughs) We say that because you will see that at times it seems to drag a little. It's a two-hour and 23-minute movie, they say, which is a long movie. It could have been trimmed up a bit. And then other times it is moving fast and you can get lost and you got to pay attention, say, you know.
1: It's... Yeah, let, let, me, let me stop you for a second on that time, because you kind of hedged on the time. Mm-hmm. IMDb lists this as a two-hour and 23-minute movie, which would put it just a little bit shorter than the longest James Bond movies of Casino Royale, Spectre, and No Time to Die. Mm-hmm. And also we have to remember that Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1 mm-hmm. came in at a whopping two hours and 43 minutes, just yeah, like yeah. No Time to Die.
0: Yeah, they're dropping Part 1 now. I'll,
1: yeah, I'll now, on. anyways, <laughs> what I'm... The IMDb number, I'm not sure where they're getting it from. Because we watched this on Amazon Prime, yeah. and it only comes in at two hours and five minutes. So I don't know what happened to the 18 minutes, or did IMDb make a mistake on that? Now, it's possible well, I, and, Amazon cut it.
0: I think there um, were multiple endings filmed, too, were there? Or did,
1: yeah, there? Yeah, there were. So just like, if you remember the 1985 movie Clue, you know, oh, yeah. There are multiple endings made for the movie Clue, and depending on what theater you saw it in, you might get a different ending than someone who saw it in a different theater uh, because okay. they played the different ending. Now we do know that Topaz had multiple endings, mm-hmm. and so and they put them on the DVD set. So I'm wondering if the two hours and twenty three minutes is the two hour and five minute movie we saw plus the other endings. Yeah, because yeah. in on Amazon Prime you get one ending with it. Yeah. So to me, even at two hours and five minutes, I thought it was way too long for what the story is. (laughs) And I know Hitchcock didn't like the story, and I can see why. This thing definitely needed some trimming up on the the script.
0: Yeah, I I like the story. The story is not the problem. But I agree on the trimming. And yeah, I I think with the cuts that they did make, and I, I think they actually cut 20 minutes out of this movie already before they put it out. And one ending, I think... The runtime is in the movie, like you said, maybe two hours and five minutes, two hours, seven minutes, something like that. And um, so I, you know, but I'm okay with the story. If you like a real spy movie, meaning you want to see what real spying is, might be like. This is a movie that is more realistic than the popular spy action movies we see now. And certainly more sober and somber than the previous six James Bond movies up to 1969 that were out. So
1: Yeah, I I totally agree with you there. But I will say, this does not make me want to sign up to be a spy. I mean, (laughs) there are some really terrible situations spies get put in.
0: Yeah, real spies and spies depicted in movies like this and The Traitors. For instance, that movie we did an episode on. It's not glamorous or fun, though Devereaux. They have some fun in this movie with Juanita, and there were others having some fun, too, but that wasn't the tone of the movie. I think, granted, some people will hate this movie. It was not all that successful at the box office, and its release, it grossed just under $4 million, they say, in the U.S. and Canada, but you get you get different numbers in different places on this.
1: And I've read that it's the only Hitchcock movie not to post a profit. I mean, I haven't yeah. tracked that down, but I read it in at least two different places. Well, it, it was...
0: It was a Hitchcock failure at the box office. There's no question about that. It's it's they said that Universal had a four million dollar budget to make this movie, which I believe it was the largest budget of any Hitchcock movie to date. And most say that they took in about three point eight million at the box office. So, yeah, they would have lost money on this movie. So, yeah, not good. Not good.
1: Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that even though it didn't make a profit, doesn't mean it's a bad movie. So let's look at a real highlight in some eyes, and that would be the acting. I mean, they've got some really solid actors here. They've got Frederick Stafford, Danny Robin, John Vernon, Karen Doerr, Michelle Piccolo, Philippe Noray, John Forsythe. So these are some named actors, heavy skew towards non-American actors.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it is. It's heavily skewed towards international actors and not American actors or I mean, one of the, a lot of the critics of this movie say, Hey, there weren't any big Hollywood stars in the movie, like Gary Grant or Ingrid Bergman or whatever. There were a lot of the international stars who were excellent though. Like you're saying, they're excellent in the movie. And I think they were real and believable.
1: Yeah. And I I really do like this cast. I mean, I like the international flavor to it. And to me, any movie that's got Roscoe Lee Brown in it is likely to have some promise. I think (laughs) that guy's fantastic. Now, that said, in today's culture, if this movie came out today, there would be people complaining about cultural appropriation. So German actress, Karen Dor, who we know from You Only Live Twice, the James Bond movie, she plays a Cuban here. Mm-hmm. The Canadian yeah. actor, John Vernon, also plays a Cuban. So I, you know, today, the, this casting might hit, cause them a problem, but it works for the movie.
0: Yeah, I didn't get that. Well, they right now pretty
1: well, I well, right now you the, they would tell you you need to hire a Cuban actor or actress to play a Cuban. Yeah. You can't take a German actress and make her Cuban. You can't take yeah. a Canadian guy Man, and, they,
0: they've got that today, all the time. Today today
1: yeah. today that comes off in the press. Now, yeah. whether it's right or not is a different story. My my yeah. comment here is that today they might get flack for this casting. I thought the casting worked very well.
0: Yeah, I did too guessing i thought was
1: correct now and i also i can't see john vernon without thinking of dean Wormer in animal house (laughs) i mean whenever that guy comes on the screen i don't care what movie it is it's like animal it's dean Wormer. now here he looks very different because he has a beard and a mustache and looks more rugged than what dean Wormer did but
0: when he comes on the screen (laughs) It's (laughs) It's <laughs> Dean Wormer. All right, Wormer. Wormer's a good one. I I, I was in, I was so into the movie, I didn't think of that. But now I won't be able to do that again. I'll, I'll be thinking of him as Wormer. And uh, Dora, yeah. I mean, she played uh, Helga Brandt in The Only Live Twice. I mean, two years before this. So she's, I thought she was stunning in this movie.
1: Right? And you get to hear her voice in this one. In the, yeah. the Only Live Twice, they dubbed her.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of dubbing in the E.N. production movies. Yep. Sometimes, I don't know why. Uh, And, of course, with the acting is the directing. It is a Hitchcock movie. And, yeah, Hitchcock makes his famous cameo in it eh, probably around the 28-minute mark. And it's an odd appearance. He's he's, It's an airport scene, and he's being pushed around by a nurse in a wheelchair. And then he sees a guy. He stands up and walks off with him. What? (laughs) Who knows? But in 1969, though, Hitchcock won Best Director Award for Topaz. From the National Board of Review. So he got some recognition. You
1: him. know, his cameos, one of the traits of these things is whenever there's a crowd scene, I pause. Yeah, yeah, yeah pause yeah. the movie, I start saying, okay. And on that airport scene, as that scene started, I'm like, this is going to be the scene he's in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And there he is.
0: And he and, put himself in earlier in the, in the movies, he said, because he didn't want to distract the audience who was always looking for him. Like yeah. you were.
1: I was. Well, I I paused the movie. I'm like, okay, this is going to be a day pay attention here. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Now, I want to add another plus to this movie. All right. We mentioned this at the beginning, but I wanted to drill into it a bit now. I like the way they integrated real history with the made-up parts of the story. I mean, the Cuban Missile Crisis was real, and Russians did defect to the U.S. Two key plot points in this movie. Yes. And one thing they used to do this integration of reality had to do with the use of newspaper front pages. Mm -hmm. And There's a couple instances here. I'll just talk about one of them. In the movie, one of the spies is looking at a New York Times dated October 22nd, 1962. Yeah. That was right in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Exactly. And the headline of the New York Times that you could see said, Capital Crisis Air Hints at Development on Cuba. Kennedy TV Talk Likely. Now, this was, that page was the actual front page of the New York Times that day on the 22nd. That night, President Kennedy did go on television and let us all know what was happening. And to me, that was fascinating because first it took me 25 minutes to find it, but I knew I was going to find it. But that this type of reality integration here into this movie helps the plot point because the plot point is kind of around the missile crisis. But it's not about the interaction of Kennedy and Khrushchev right. that when you see Missiles of October or whatever you think of. Yeah, right. This is about some of the behind-the-scenes work. Yeah, and yeah that, I liked it. That's a good point. And that, and that newspaper front page brought Kennedy's name into this thing, and it was a real front page from seven years before they made this movie. And I just yeah. thought that was really a great way to tie things together. Yeah, that's cool. Now, another thing they did that I really liked with this is they integrated footage from around that time. There's some great footage of Fidel Castro at what looks like be a rally. Yeah. And it includes a shot of Che Guevara. This was a type of reality it was great to see. It brought you to the time. Those yeah. were real people. They weren't the actors you saw. Even if you didn't you know like me, I was too young to really know what this yeah. was, it ties you into that. Now that said, if the events of this movie were really happening on October 22nd, like they're telling us, some of the fake events I didn't think were integrated enough for my liking. It was nice that that stuff was there to pull me in. I mean, the story pokes around the missile crisis, but it doesn't hit you as hard as we really were hit when this thing went on.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I think you're right on that last point. In reality, it was a nightmare for the world when it was happening. Really could have been a nuclear World War three And and we will get to the ending, too, which I want to talk about. But, yeah, I think you're right. It danced around the entire crisis, but that was the focal point of the underlying focal point of the movie. But I think you're right. They spent a lot of time on other things around it. But it was good. I like it. All right. There, okay, there's, so some real ne- there's some negatives in this movie.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you think?
0: I mean, first of all, The commercial and critical recognition it got, that reception wasn't real warm. Topaz did not perform as well commercially, like we mentioned, or critically, as some of Hitchcock's earlier works. It received mixed reviews, and its box office performance, as mentioned, was relatively modest at just under $4 million in the U.S. So it lost money, U.S. and Canada. And there were some pacing issues.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, definitely.
0: Uh, Some viewers and critics noted pacing issues in the film with certain segments feeling slow and less engaging compared to other Hitchcock classics. There aren't blood-curdling moments we have become accustomed to in Hitchcock movies, but we have to say there are some moments where you think you know what is going to happen, and it might happen, but you are tense nonetheless. So in that sense, Hitchcock, as he has done so often before, is letting us, the audience, participate in the action. I mean, we think we know what is going to happen, and we're waiting for it. Sometimes we may be wrong, but sometimes we're right, and that creates suspense for us, the viewers, which he's a master of. This is the power of anticipation, and we are now part of it in the movie. That part, I think, was brilliant. This is a good thing in this movie. As Hitchcock once said, make the audience suffer as much as possible. And he also said there is no terror in the bang, only in the anticipation of it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's it. It's the buildup. It's not the the event itself.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, there's some pacing issues in the movie. And quite frankly, I was okay with the pacing except for the end, which reminded me of, I don't know, someone eating a delicious... A uh, meal at a regular pace, and then just uh, decides to scarf it all down as soon as possible in a moment, and it's gone. It's like, wait, wait a minute, what's going on here? That's that's how the movie ended. Not with an appetizer, a meal, and a dessert, but bam, the meal's over, and so the movie is over. This is my single biggest critique of the movie. Really, is the abrupt ending of it. Like they like, oh, we're gonna wrap this thing up.
1: Well, to me, it kind of felt like it had two endings. But, you know, and to me, there also was not this as much. This is the much. one they picked. Yeah, but no, it's not even that's not even that. I'll, I'll talk about that in a few minutes. But there, there really wasn't that much tension for me. I mean, if it wasn't for some of the camera shots and some of the visual stuff we talked about before, I don't know that I would have picked up that this was a Hitchcock movie. At points with the pacing, it didn't feel like one of his. It visually was looked like one of his, but the pacing didn't really make it feel like it was one of his. Yeah, see, well, you know
0: what I said about what, what I said a, uh, a minute ago. I, I think it's still true that we were drawn into some of those scenes where we we think we know it's going to happen, and then it it may happen, and it does happen. But we're anticipating it, like he said. That's the anticipation that draws you into it. And I, I did like some of those elements.
1: Yeah, see, I, I, for me, for me, the tension wasn't Hitchcockian, but that brings us to another miss, and it dovetails exactly on what I was just saying. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. that is a comparison to Hitchcock's earlier works. Yeah. Hitchcock had created such a string of successful movies in the years leading up to Topaz. Yeah. I mean, we had Psycho, Vertigo, North by Northwest, and then all the rest of his spy movies, The 39 Steps, Secret Agent, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Twice, Notorious. I mean, some critics and audiences found Topaz to be less memorable in comparison.
0: Okay. I can see Would that.
1: this have been more successful if Hitch didn't have a name to it? Kind of wonder. Mm, mm. I mean, maybe it's less memorable for some reasons compared to the classics, but it's still a decent espionage movie. It's believable and real feeling. Yeah, you get a real feeling. Yeah. yeah so maybe, you know, you said you can kind of guess what's going to happen, but yeah. you do get involved in the movie, which is what movie magic's all about.
0: Yeah, I think that's the magic of this movie. Yeah. You can compare it to other Hitchcock movies, but at this point, yeah, maybe if Hitchcock's name wasn't on this thing, it would have been more successful. Because <laughs> they're like, hey, you did all this other stuff, which is fabulous. You know, yeah, the anticipation of what, be a,
1: equal. yeah, the anticipation of what a Hitchcock movie is doesn't come to play here in the plot.
0: Yeah, and it, let's talk about the plot. We don't. We mentioned it's a complex plot, and some viewers appreciate intricate plots in espionage movies like Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Spy, and others find Topaz to be overly complex, maybe even convoluted, <laughs> making it challenging at times to follow. So, okay, yeah, I, I think that's true. You must pay attention. Things sometimes happen slowly, like we mentioned, and sometimes very, very fast. So this critique is accurate. And it isn't something like, hey, get the lector or some other MacGuffin. Here, it's real espionage, as it would have happened, as it would happen in the real world. And you are drawn into that part of it. And you really do have to know the players here and whose side they might be on or are on. But that, again, adds to the intrigue. So, yeah, complicated plot for sure.
1: Yeah, no, to me, there is a MacGuffin here. It's not a physical object like we so often seen. It's not the rabbit's foot in Mission Impossible 3, for example. But for me, I thought the movie was over at the climax in Cuba. I mean, it just felt like when Andre was on that plane, things wrapped up but then there was another 38 minutes to this movie. I mean, I totally understand what they did and why they did it, but that really drew the movie out for me because when Andre gets on that plane and he reads, he reads that note and looks at that book, it's like, okay, we're done. That was the plot. I I know what you mean. I I
0: think they wasted some of that 38 minutes for sure. I, I did not mind the length but I minded what you're what, what you're saying, that it was more or less a hollow 38 minutes, which could have been really used to tighten up the main plot, the main event, the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, the 38 minutes passed, and then they, like I said, the meal was devoured in a second, and they said, All right, well, that's it. We got to wrap this thing up. I think they could have used some of that 38 minutes to have a better wrap-up and stress the resolution and how the resolution came about to the Cuban Missile Crisis.
1: Okay, so let's wrap up our view here on this movie yeah. then. <laughs> right, Dan, is this worth a watch?
0: Yeah, look, I, I think if you have not seen Topaz and you like espionage movies, then, yeah, this is one to see. It is a long movie, nonetheless. A lot of it moves nicely. There is suspense. There's tension. There's some surprise and there are parts where it moves more slowly but i think it's worth a watch what do you think tom
1: yeah i think it's worth a watch i don't know if it's worth watching more than once (laughs) but uh it's from an espionage movie perspective when you look at the espionage part of it i really like the way they did that
0: all right That's a wrap, then. This has been Dan. And Tom. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com and our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast app and on our YouTube channel as well. Lots of fun stuff there. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you spending time with us.